This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for downloading or streaming this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so subscribe to get them all. And why not also leave us a rating and a review? This week, we're tracing the fascinating story of an almost forgotten currency. In early medieval England, eels were used as a unit of exchange for goods, services and the payment of debts for many years. And joining us to explain how these once abundant fish powered the medieval economy and why they were coveted as both a food and currency is medievalist and cartographic historian Dr John Wyatt Greenlee. Hello, it's really nice to be here with you. So for any listeners unfamiliar with eels, John, what are they? <laughs> well, that's that's a really fun question. So eels are a fish, although they look a little bit like snakes. Uh, they're a catadromous fish, which means they have, they're sort of like reverse salmon. They have this life cycle where they're born in the middle of the ocean and they come to land and spend most of their lives living inland in either estuaries or in lakes and freshwater bodies of water. And then they migrate back to sea to mate and die at the end of their lives. So they've this really interesting fish with a fascinating life cycle and a really long migratory pattern. Yes, yeah, so both freshwater and saltwater fish, which is yes, interesting. Yes, uh, they, are, they are both, and they can go back and forth between the two over the course of their lives. There are fish that live in the estuaries that, that sort of live in saltwater and freshwater both, which, and we'll get to this in a little bit, I'm sure, but this plays a bit of a role in their history as a trade good between Holland and England. And this is the first time, of course, that we've covered eels on the podcast. Um, quite a niche subject. How did you, as a historian, get into studying eels? Accidentally, as it turns out, I uh, am to study maps and cartographic history, and I still do. But I was looking at maps of London from the 17th century for non-eel-related reasons. And I noticed that a number of the maps of London included these two ships on the Thames labeled eel ships. And this caught my attention. I didn't know anything at all about eels. And so I wondered why these maps had these ships as a landmark, because they had a label that said eel ships. And the only other things that had labels were big civic monuments like the Tower of London or you know, St. Paul's Cathedral or neighborhoods. So these ships had clearly achieved some sort of landmark status, and I wanted to know why. And the process of trying to answer that question led me down a really long series of investigative pathways that wound up with me suddenly looking around several years later and realizing that I wasn't really a map historian anymore. I was an eel historian. <laughs> so you've been really tenacious into what is a very slippery subject, fundamentally. Yes. And Yes, and it sounds remarkable to us as well with our coins and notes, internet banking, even cryptocurrency these days, that people once paid each other in a type of fish. So how did eels begin as this unit of currency for exchange of goods and services? That's one of the things that really fascinated me as I started to learn about eel history, is that there's a really long history in England of using eels as an in-kind payment for debts of all sorts. Um, and this starts in sort of pre-Norman England when there's actually quite a lot of in-kind payments for, for rent, especially people paying their landlords in, 
in all sorts of things in um, ale and grain and chickens and eggs and also in eels. And this is partly to do, largely to do with the fact that there's not a lot of currency floating around in pre-Norman England. And what there is tends to stay uh, sort of among elite families. They trade it back and forth. It's more a status symbol than an, a, like something you actually pay for goods and services with. And so landlords tended to collect rent from their tenants in kind things. And as it turns out, eels are one of the most common in-kind rent payments in early medieval England. There are more payments for eels in the Doomsday Book than there are for wheat, for example. And at the end of the end of the 11th century, so start of the 12th century, there are more than half a million eels being paid in rent in England every year. I can point to 540 some thousand, but I know that number is low because there's sort of gaps in, in the record for the Doomsday Book and all sorts of things. So, but at least half a million. Many of these are being paid to monastic landlords, but not all of them. They're civic, um, secular landlords as well. And in a number of cases, we can see places where these eel rents that are being paid to landlords, the landlords are then turning around and using these eels to pay for other things, to buy, um, very often sort of buy other pieces of property or rent other pieces of property. So the eels are acting as sort of a de facto currency. In-kind rent payments in England tend to drop off pretty quickly in the 12th century as the monarchy sort of mints more and more coins. And money is fungible in ways that like a bale of hay isn't. So people prefer to be paid in, in coin if they can. Eel rents, however, eel rents stay very common in England through essentially through the Black Death, at which point there are major structural changes um, and population changes that sort of bring an end to that. And they, they start tailing off at that point. The last eel rent that I can point to is from the early 17th century, at which point there's just kind of basically one or two hanging on. Sort of tradition, and the reason that, that we know about them is because the landlords were having a really hard time getting the tenants. In this case, the last one was a miller in in Norfolk, getting the miller to pay the rent, and probably because he's sort of looking around, being like, "Nobody else is doing this. Why am I still paying rent in eels?" Mm. So interesting. So you've got the last record. Have you got the first record, the first transaction in eels? Yeah. So the earliest ones I can point to are from the 10th century. And, so the 900s, basically. Yes, from the from the 900s. But those records actually indicate that they're continuations of earlier ones. So one of the, I'm blanking on the name of the king, but one of the earliest that I can point to is a gift from, from the king to the monks at Cambridge. He's sort of giving them a property that includes a rent of eels that the tenants paid to the king in lieu of military service. But the charter that grants this rent to Cambridge indicates that this is a rent that the king has held of old. So like it's it's not a new rent. So that's the earliest one I can point to, but it sort of in itself tells us that, that this is an older tradition than that. Right. So it could have gone back to maybe the 700s, perhaps even earlier than that. Quite possibly. Yeah. So ninth century, so eight charters from the 800s will often use eel traps as an indicator for boundary markers. And we know from archaeological evidence that people in 8th century and 7th century England are eating a ton of eels. People in sort of South Saxons in 7th century, you know, from dental records, from protein analysis from their, from their teeth, that they were eating more eels than they were eating all other freshwater fish combined and all of their saltwater fish combined. So they're really eating a lot of eels. 
And so it wouldn't at all surprise me if there were sort of eel rents, people paying their rents to landlords and eels going back substantially further than, than the records I can point to. They must have really had a good idea of um, these fish migratory patterns and movements and, you know. Well, no, actually they didn't. Um, the sort of, um, we've only had a good sense for eels migration history for the last hundred years, basically. Mm. Um, and a good guess about it for the last couple hundred years. But the medieval conception of eels, they were rather confused about where they came from, you know, because they, they sort of appear from, from the sea and they, disappear when they to, to, to make nests. So there's no sense of their the reproduction cycles. It's been a question that people have asked for a really long time. The medieval idea was that eels were essentially asexual. And that idea dates as far back at least as Aristotle, who was very curious about eels' sexual patterns, as he was with many things. He dissected eels, trying to look for their reproductive organs without any success. And that has to do with the fact, as we know now, that almost all of their lives that eels spend inland in freshwater bodies of water. They're essentially juveniles. Their reproductive organs are not developed. They don't develop until right at the end of their lives when they head out to sea to mate and die. So Aristotle began a long history, a very long history in, in the West of dissecting eels, looking for their reproductive organs. And that history stretched all the way up to Freud, who did exactly the same thing. But, uh, but he couldn't find them. And so he sort of assumed that they, they must reproduce asexually then and began to look for reasons why. Aristotle thought that they probably sprang out of the mud. They sort of grew out of the mud. He didn't make the connection between eels and elvers, the sort of baby eels that come up from the sea. And other sort of classical authorities made similar guesses about eels. Plenty of the elder thought that they maybe rubbed themselves against rocks and then the little flakes of skin that came off grew into new eels. So nobody really <laughs> had a good guess. And those ideas carried over into medieval Europe. And for most of medieval, what we would think of as medieval history, the sort of conception of eels was that they were essentially, they had some sort of asexual reproduction. There are a couple of people, Hildegard of Bingen and a couple other people who thought that maybe they actually just like swam out to sea to mate and that they were oviparous, that they laid eggs, which is true. But for the vast majority of medieval uh, philosophers and theologians and academics and, and popular ideas too. The basic gist was that somehow eels just sort of sprang from nothing one way or the other. So I think, based on what you just described there, that perhaps the medieval mind was giving eels this sort of mysterious value. Yeah, they were definitely a really mysterious fish. And an abundant one, which made it even more interesting, right? So at this point, and I think we'll come back to this sort of at the end of our conversation, but at this point, eels are critically endangered. But that's a relatively recent phenomenon in the last 50 to 100 years. Prior to that, eels have historically made up somewhere between 25 and 50% of the fish biomass in downstream sections of rivers in England and Europe and the east coast of the US. So tremendously available fish, I guess, but tremendously populous fish. They were sort of all over the place. So you have this really ubiquitous fish with a, with a very mysterious kind of background. And that plays out in some interesting ways in sort of, the fish have an interesting place in, in medieval theology, or at least sort of on the edges of medieval theology. So many of these eel rents that we're talking about, and some of them are really small, some of them are 50, 75 fish, and some of them are really big. The largest eel rent in the Doomsday Book is 75,000 eels. 
paid to the Earl of Chester. So some of these are really small and some of these are really big. And they're, most of them are due to be paid to the landlords right at the beginning of Lent. So the way that it works is the fish are generally caught as they're migrating back down to sea in the fall. It's eels have a seasonal migration. So they migrate upstream in the spring and the adult eels migrate downstream in the fall. So they're usually caught in the fall and then salted and smoked in a process that takes several months. And then most often, if they're being paid for rent, they're paid in the spring right before Lent. And the reason they're paid before Lent is because Lent is a period where you're not supposed to eat meat among other things. But the reason you're not supposed to eat meat is because meat is, is, a, is from a carnal animal that has obvious sex. And so meat it reminds you of sex. The, Thomas Aquinas is really kind of clear about this. This is the reason we don't eat meat during, during Lent or other church holidays. Fish are better because fish don't remind you of sex so much, he says. And the thing about eels is eels have this this long and classically established history of being an asexual animal. So eating eels is great because it doesn't remind you of sex at all. So that's sort of the theological <laughs> grounding for it. And so there's they're a really common thing to eat at Lent and in other fish days when you're not supposed to eat meat. And by the time you get to the sort of middle of the medieval period, there are it's maybe about a third of the year that are made up of these these fish days. So there's quite a lot of opportunity to eat eel. How did people pay in eels? They were smoked already. They weren't obviously live. They weren't kept in massive vats. So there are a couple of instances in rental charters where the landlords are asking for live eels, but oh. that's really rare. And those tend to be very small numbers. Eels are in fact really difficult to keep in like a fish pond, like you might keep other kinds of fish. There's a number of reasons for this. There are a couple of medieval sort of husbandry guides that really advise against keeping eels in fish ponds because they will eat the other fish because eels will eat just about anything. They mm. will, in fact, eat each other too, because they're quite happy to be cannibalistic if they get super hungry. So they'll eat other fish, they'll eat each other, and they can leave. So eels can travel overland if they really feel the need. And so it's very difficult to keep them live in fish ponds. So the payments tend to be made in, in, in dead eels, eels basically. and salted and smoked. And they're smoked in not in the way that anybody who has eaten smoked eel today would be familiar with. Starting in the mid-19th century, we developed a, a hot smoking process that makes a really sort of savory and delicious fish where the meat falls off the off the little bones. But medieval smoking was a cold smoking process that took a really long time and wound up with the eel being very well preserved, but also really sort of chewy and a little bit tasteless. Medieval smoked eel was not nearly the delicacy that modern smoked eel is, but it did last for a really long time. And so these eels would be paid, most of the time they're counted in units called sticks, and a stick of eel is 25 eels. And then sometimes if you're dealing with large numbers, you might uh, count those in units of called a bind, and a bind is 10 sticks, so 250 eels. And that's sort of makes the accounting a little bit easier. But they're paid essentially by salting them and smoking them and piling them up and taking them to your landlord in the back of your wagon or however it is you're getting them there. What are these dead eels paying for? Is it just um, rent as in property or can it be all kinds of other things? Mostly it's rent. Almost all of these are being paid to landlords for the right to to fish in different places, for the rent for mills. So one of the mills provide one of the primary, especially in Doomsday Book, primary places where we have eel rents. There tend to be a place where eels congregate because they get a little bit stuck with the dams, although they can get around them. And so medieval millers wind up with a surplus of eels very often, and so they wind up being charged eels in rent. 
most of the landlords are just are collecting rent for different property reasons. There are, as I said earlier, there are instances where we can point to landlords, especially monastic houses, using eels to buy other things. So probably the most famous of this is monastery at uh, Ramsey bought a lot of its building stone from the monastery at Peterborough and paid for that in eels. And I understand that you've created this interactive map showing where eel rents were collected and some of these places include some English heritage sites. How many sort of dots have you got on this interactive map where all this data is recording things? About 400. So almost as many English heritage sites really because there's about 400 (laughs) of those in the national portfolio. So let's look at one which is listed, uh, Castle Acre Priory, which is in Norfolk in East Anglia, Eastern England. What's the eel rent there? So Castle Acre is a really interesting example to pick because they have a number of relatively small eel rents that they're taking from a lot of different places. One of the things about the Castle Acre rents is that they tend to have been given to the priory in wills by people who have either died and are hoping that giving a specific rent so that the the monks will will pray for their souls, or they are being given in memoria of people who have died. So there's a number of small rents. So I can tell you that in 1086, so this this is from the Doomsday Book, that the Earl of Surrey had about 2,000 eels that were due to him from someplace else that he granted to the priory. From They were coming from Methwald. In about 1,100, the, the Earl of Warren gave 1,000. And another 1,000 about 30 years later from a different place from Burnham. The first was from Cranwich. The second was from Burnham. One of the interesting things about these is that they appear at a couple of – these rents appear at a couple of different points. They're really long-lasting these sort of smaller rents that Castle Laker holds on to. So I have records of, of these particular ones sort of reappearing to sort of re, uh, renewed or, or adjusted a little bit up through the 16th century. Right. So are you sort of saying that these are long-standing debts then? They are. They are. It's one of the things that's really difficult to figure out about eel rents and probably other in-kind rents as well. I just The eels are where I have expertise, is that they tend to appear in the records when they're initiated and then if they're changed, and then when they're ended, but often not in between. So you will sometimes go for really long periods of time without any actual evidence of the rent having been paid or not paid, sometimes centuries at a time. Like in this case, like the Castle Acre ones, they appear in the 12th century when they're sort of initiated, the 11th and 12th centuries, and then come up again in the 15th century, 16th century. So it's it's a little bit difficult to tell whether What's the continuation over those you know, several hundred years? Are they paid continuously? Are they not? There's places where we have court records where um, it's one of the places, uh, the ways that I know we have eel rent sometimes is that they will appear in a court record from a landlord who is suing a tenant who hasn't paid for three or four years, a rent that I didn't know existed otherwise. And when I said earlier that the number of rents I can point to, I know is low. That's one of the reasons because there's all sorts of places where rents appear or don't appear where you would suspect that the, you suspect they they probably are there, but they're really hard to get a hold of, like eels. <laughs> I hate to bring back the image, but it, again, it's a very sort of slippery subject with bad bookkeeping, isn't it? Really, um, it is. You know, it's um, this is what I wound up being the subject of my doctoral dissertation, and so you know, it took me about five years to sort of 
piece together as much of this as 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 I could. But you know, it takes a lot of sort of careful thought and sleuthing to pull these all together into any kind of story that makes sense. Yes, because it's it seems like there's a lot of gaps in the knowledge and in the records. Much on the Abbey is in Somerset in southwest England, obviously a, a monastic site. What's the yield rent there? So this is again a rent that's coming from that we know about from the Doomsday Book, and so the record is from 1086. I don't know how f- much further back it goes than that. Um, probably a good ways, but in 1086, the Abbot of Mulchney was collecting 6,000 eels every year for a rent from three islands in. I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Middleney. Middleney. Middleneys, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so he's collecting rent from three islands. So uh, basically he's collecting the rent on on the islands. It's probably a fishing spot. So in a lot of these cases, this, one of the really fascinating things about eel rents to remember is, so I've mentioned there are you know 540 plus thousand eels being paid in rent in England every year. And these are the eels off the top, essentially. In a lot of cases, these are rents being charged to people who were fishing eels as a living. And so- there are a lot more eels sort of in sort of being eaten and, and circulating through the economy than the rents indicate. The rents are just sort of, the rents point us in the direction, but they don't give us anything like a complete picture. And let's choose um, another site that people might be familiar with as a, as a place to visit on the English Heritage Tourist Trail, Battle Abbey, which uh, is the, the abbey that was famously founded after the Battle of Hastings in 1066, that great turning point in English history where William the Conqueror comes across from France and takes the English crown. So how are those monks paid in eels? They have pretty small rents, actually. There's uh, The Empty Book records one rent of 300 eels that's due to them from the fishermen at Wye. And then in 1351, that rent gets adjusted down to 150 eels a year. And with uh, sort of the rent adjusted to drop the number of eels, but they include a monetary payment. Okay. Just that I've understood this correctly. These particular English heritage sites, are they the debtors or they are the creditors or both? These are sites that are receiving eels as payment. So they're creditors effectively. Yes. I can tell you also that one of the interesting things about Battle Abbey is that we've got pretty good records from their kitchen, from their from their kitchens essentially. And while they didn't receive a lot of eels in rent, they bought a lot of eels. It was a still still remained a really standard part of the diet. So they bought a lot of eels, ate them several times a week. The sheer numbers that you're talking about as well, I think, it was the biggest number at Castle Lake, wasn't it? What does one do? Yeah, six thousand eels. How does one store six thousand eels? I know they're not a big fish. You know, especially when they've probably been smoked, they, they've lost a lot of mass and yes. size. Anyway, so I guess are they just put in a crate and or a few crates and put in a basement? I believe so. You know, when they're they're smoked and 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 salted, they do lose a lot of sort of size and, and mass, as you said, and they wind up being basically like sticks, kind of like they're long and straight. And so you can kind of stack them up on top of each other. But this is actually a question that I don't have a good answer for. It's something that people ask me a lot and that I've wondered, <laughs> but there's not a lot of evidence for what the Earl of Chester did when people showed up at his doorstep with 75,000 eels. Where in fact do you stick them? I don't actually know. So are they actually useful once they've been smoked and they're in boxes? 
Yes. Like I said, medieval smoked eels aren't terribly tasty. They get used in soups and stews and, and things like that where you can cover up the flavor a little bit. Of course, also monasteries have sort of dedication to a certain aesthetic lifestyle that is maybe okay with having fish that doesn't taste that good. But generally, the smoked eels aren't just sort of eaten by themselves. They tend to get put into other things. So, I mean, have you got an example of how many eels would be needed to pay certain rent? So, say you said you had 10 acres. Mm-hmm. You were a tenant farmer and you didn't own that land and you're paying the landlord to produce crops on that land and you're going to pay in eels. What would, what would 10 acres be worth in eels? That's really hard to say, actually, um, because it it's really context dependent. It depends greatly on where the land is and kind of what it looks like, and also who the landlord is, maybe, and who the and who the landlord is too, and kind of what they what they want. So that's yeah, okay. So that's re- again a really slippery uh, valuation it, it system. So, you know, some of the biggest eel rents, as you might imagine, come from sort of East Anglia, from the from the fens, um, from the mm-hmm. Norfolk Broads, and places like that, where there are simply more eels because it's a more eel friendly habitat. It's a more marshy uh, area, are, isn't it? Yes. Or you know, the abbeys at Ely or, or um, Peterborough or Ramsey or places like that. But eel rents are, especially early, are fairly common all over the country. But the numbers tend to shift drastically just depending on kind of what the type of land is, what the type of rent is and where it is. I think we're gradually grasping the subject here, aren't we? Because if eels were being caught together, would they sort of be bunched like say spring onions would be when you're you know when you're going to the supermarket was there a way of counting them yeah and i touched on this earlier but for a lot of these rents eels are counted in groups of 25 and 25 eels is called a stick this is probably because that's about as many eels as you can get on a stick for smoking so you sort of thread them on the on the stick one after the other sort of threaded like essentially through the mouth and the and the gills so it looks like a xylophone, basically, of eels. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, you can see pictures of eels being smoked in a very similar fashion if you sort of Google it. And those are, again, hot smoked eels rather than cold, but the, the essentially the process of stringing up the eels and hanging them over uh, whatever you're using to smoke them with, fire. <laughs> yes. Uh, it looks essentially the same. Now, we touched a little bit earlier on about whether there was this sort of mysterious value to eels as well as the fact that they were so abundant but um was there any religious significance to eels and that was perhaps why they also had this use as a currency yes and it's sort of touched on this a little bit ago but the fact that they had this perception as being asexual meant that they were really useful fish for lent and other fish days when you weren't supposed to be eating meat and were supposed to be thinking about sex at all and so Mm. eels are really good for that um and it's one of the reasons that the rents hang on for a long time, way past when a lot of other in-kind rents sort of fall off or get replaced by monetary payments, is because, well, a lot of the payments are made to monasteries and the monasteries would probably be, if you paid them in coin, would probably be taking the coin to buy eels anyway, because the eels are sort of a religiously useful fish for fish days. So the eels had a really broad, practical but also theological application in the sense yes. that they fed you, they provided you protein and nourishment, you could pay in them, and they also seem to have this 
special quality that no one could quite explain as well because everyone's thought wrongly that they were asexual but they actually weren't so they right. sort of had this mysterious power as well would that be a fair assessment yeah i think so this is a bit of an aside but one of the funny things about the asexual nature of eels is they have that's a sort of theological understanding of eels Eels also have a pretty long history in English writing and plays and things like that as being a, a stand-in for sort of a phallic stand-in, right? They show up in a number of, especially sort of Elizabethan era plays as, as a, being useful for penis jokes. So they have both this sort of asexual uh, sort of valence and a very sexual valence all at the same time, but those are operating on really different cultural tracks. So very virile, but also sort of mysterious. Yes, that's a fascinating dynamic, that one. And what about the trade in English eels? Because there must have been, obviously, some sort of European interest in this currency as well. It wouldn't have just been a domestic currency within England. That's a really fascinating question, too. And I mentioned at the top of our conversation that I got into eels because there's sort of these eel ships on these maps, and that's an eel trade. It's actually going the other direction, though. So eels are a fish that are fairly commonly eaten all throughout Europe, but they are most commonly eaten, and we can tell this from archaeological records, in the Netherlands actually, and in England. There are eel rents in other places, but not nearly to the extent there are in England. England has, medieval England has a sort of culture around eels that is relatively unique within Europe, as far as I can tell. So there are, I can point you to instances of eel rents, some in France and a few in Italy, and and some in the Holy Land during the Crusades, they sort of take the idea with them but the heavy majority of them seem to be in England. There is a trade in eels in England, a sort of a native inland trade, and some of it is in these smoked eels, but there's also a trade in live eels. One of the things about eels is they can live for a while out of water, and so you can ship them back and forth without having to worry too much about them. You pack them between layers of like damp moss or hay, and they can live in that environment for several days without too much trouble. So there's a trade in live eels, uh, an inland trade. The really interesting trade in eels, and this is where I got into eel history, this is sort of my entry point, was in trade in eels from the continent to England, actually. England almost never in sort of most of its history has almost never been an exporter of fish of any kind. The medieval fish trade with England is almost always an incoming trade. And that's true of, of eels as well. So starting in the sort of late 14th century after the Black Death, we start getting records of a growing Dutch trade in eels to London and other places in England, but it winds up being a, the, primarily focused on London. I mean, this develops into a really robust trade and it starts with the trade in, in salted and smoked eels, but somewhere in the mid-15th century, around somewhere 1440, 1450, the Dutch start using water ships. So these are ships with large holds, where the hold is essentially full of water. The Dutch use these for a lot of inland trade and, and fishing in the Netherlands. And sometime in the middle of the 15th century, they start using these to bring large numbers of live eels over from the Netherlands to London. And they wind up parking their or mooring their ships in the middle of the Thames. So they've got some water flow through them. That's one of the things about these ships is they have holes, small holes in the in the ships to let water run through so the the fish and the holds don't so that though you know you get water circulation and the, the fish yes. and the holds don't. So it's oxygenated, yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so they, they wind up sort of um, mooring these ships in the middle of the Thames so they get water flow through them. And then people come out to the ships to get their eels from the Dutch. And over the next couple of hundred years, they essentially establish 
basically a de facto monopoly on eel sales in London. And this has to do primarily with the fact that the Dutch seem to be the only people who know how to make these ships and, and so know how to transport eels in large numbers, sort of live eels in large numbers. Eels are a tremendously important part of the English diet, but most people really prefer them to be live or, or fresh because, as I said, they're a lot tastier that way. And so as London grows and expands and does so fairly drastically over the, the later Middle Ages, it really quickly outstrips its capacity to provide the carrying capacity of local waterways to provide people with the eels that they want. And so the Dutch sort of step in and, and fill this need. And you know, by the time you get to the 17th century, when I saw these maps where I saw the eel ships, they are the primary people selling eels, live eels in London. And this is why they become the sort of landmark that, that I first wondered about when I was looking at these maps. Well, I hate to say this, but it's a clever clogs Dutch. Um, they, um, they had the infrastructure and the technology, and therefore they had sort of monopoly on the trade in, they did. in the eels. And, and there were some other issues as well that sort of led to that. So one of the things that happens in the early 14th century is that the Dutch have these sort of native peat beds, and they've been mining them for a while. And by the time you get to the early 14th century, they've essentially mined out a lot of their peat beds, and these peat beds have become sort of low-lying swampy areas that are fantastic eel habitats. So you get to the early 14th century, sort of pre-Black Death, and the Netherlands has become like a really fantastic place for eels to live. And then this gets compounded, or sort of maybe compounded is the wrong word, but it gets the next, next sort of contributing factor is while in most places in Europe, the Black Death saw a flight away from cities. One of the curiosities about the Netherlands is it saw a flight to cities. And so you wind up with a lot of the sort of Dutch hinterlands being essentially abandoned. And those properties fall into the hands of a small number of merchant families in some of the bigger cities. And so what happens is that these merchant families wind up with control over all of these inland waterways and swamps and canals, sluice gates, and all sorts of things. And so essentially wind up in control of a huge number of eels. And so being merchant families, one of the things they start doing is looking for places to like, what to, what can we do with these things? And so they wind up developing a trade out of a, a resource that sort of fell into their laps through a series of, of, of events. And they don't just trade to London. There's actually a really robust trade in Dutch eels um, all across Europe. My particular focus tends to be on England, and so I focus mostly on the on the Dutch trade to London, but they sort of go everywhere with them. Right. Were they the primary country that was driving this trade then? Yeah, they, they really were. And were, were the English the primary consumers of it? Initially, yes. So this trade goes on for a really long time. So there are Dutch eel ships on the Thames until 1938. By the time you get there, the Dutch trade in eels has sort of expanded and the trade to London only makes up a, a part of it. But I think initially the London trade was one of the real centerpieces of the of the Dutch eel trade. What is peak eel popularity? Whenabouts is that? That's a really fascinating question. I, I don't know that I've thought of it quite in those terms before, but I would say that really eels are a significant part of the English diet um, that cuts across what we might think of as, as regular social or cultural boundaries. Everybody ate eels from kings down to peasants and by and large seem to have really enjoyed them. Um, and this is the case from sort of the early medieval period all the way up through essentially the middle of the 17th century. There seems to be a real break with the Anglo-Dutch wars that interrupts this trade. I mentioned that the Dutch trade in eels to London goes from you know the 
14th century up through 1938, there is a gap of about 20 years or so in the latter part of the 17th century where there are not, this trade doesn't exist. And that seems to be an interesting breaking point where especially elite perceptions of eels as a desirable food really shifts. It's from that point on that eels pick up a real lower class sensibility that they really still kind of continue to hold. It's up to that point, eels are, we've got evidence from lots of people across social strata eating eels, but they also show up uh, their importance shows up in, in other ways. They're in plays and language and toponyms and all sorts of places that after about, there's a real cutoff in the latter part of the 17th century where they suddenly just sort of disappear from all of those places. There's a real rich history of eel metaphors in England. Shakespeare mentions eels more than any other fish in his writing, and it's always metaphorical. But after that point, after the sort of break with the Anglo-Dutch wars, there's a real change in that. And so I think I'm not sure I can pinpoint like a peak moment, but I can. I think I can pinpoint the place where it sort of really starts to fall off. And that's around the Anglo-Dutch Wars? Yes. When the trade gets interrupted and so sort of suddenly London's not getting the eels that it's sort of used to, and London being London tends to drive a lot of cultural production in Europe. And so we get, or in, in England rather, and so you get this real moment of shift. Would also people have thought, well, we're at war with the Dutch, so I don't really want to have any of their products anyway. Yeah, I think so. You know, this changes, right? So like Mayhew's history of, of London poor in the 19th century talks about the fact that eels are, and Dutch eels specifically, are the second most popularly purchased street food in London. So the Dutch ships come back and the eels remain sort of popular, but there's a real shift from them being a food that everybody eats to them being much more a lower class street food kind of thing. Just remind us of the exact sort of time period where this decline would have set in. Yeah, so in the 1700s? 1700s, okay. What about between the 1700s and now? Where are we with eels these days? Because I don't eat, eat a lot them. Of them. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're not really I've heard of jelly of the... eels. I think you can probably get them in tins. That's all I know. And I, I tend to probably associate that with the sort of early to mid 20th century. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty fair, actually. So they stay a fairly popular lower-class street food through the early 20th century. And in the 19th and 20th century, there's a real move towards the sort of jellied eels. There's not a lot of evidence for jellied eels before that. They could have, like the jellying process is really old. Everybody knew how to jelly things, but the jellied eels seems to be a 19th and 20th century sort of phenomenon. But it is also like an East End lower class kind of sensibility to it, right? And one of the things that happens in the early 20th century is you get a real, with sort of refrigeration and better transportation, you get a wider variety of foods available to more people. And one of the things that almost always happens in those instances is that poorer people will want to eat like people they perceive as being sort of above their station. And so when they can move away from eels, they do. And so the Dutch keep selling eels in London off of these ships, like I said, through 1938. And it's an important enough trade that in World War I, the Dutch sort of stay where they are. These ships stay on the Thames, even though they're empty because they want to keep their space. But by the time you get into the 1930s, they're not selling nearly as many eels as they used to. There's a real noticeable drop-off in trade, and they don't come back after World War II. Right. So there's, I think you, your, your, your sense of sort of the, the importance of eels um, is about right in, in terms of time frame. So they just do um, a complete 180 in terms of popularity then. They've mm-hmm. gone from sort of almost being a luxury good and this fantastic currency for paying rent. 
paying debts and then suddenly they are almost a worthless food they are no good yeah somebody i work with a while ago made the point to me that they sort of have an inverse trajectory to lobster which i hadn't Mm. thought about before but makes a lot of sense something that used to be so sort of common that it was just a thing that only poor people ate and then suddenly we've got a shift where lobsters is is a much more sort of a luxury item yeah so eels have sort of seen a, a, a reverse trajectory to that now, John, ever since you started investigating this, having seen pictures of these ships moored up in the Thames saying, you know, eels on them, did you start investigating eating them as well? Did you get an interest in eating eels as a result of your study? I have eaten more eel since I started doing this than I ever have in my life before, but that's a pretty low bar to clear. People occasionally will give me eel. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I don't eat a lot of eel because they're critically endangered and that's not great for them. How long has this um, ecological situation been around for that's, that's caused you to change your eating habits? It's been in the past 40 to 50 years that the eel population has really collapsed. It was still fairly strong through the mid 20th century, but in the last 40 or 50 years, the eel population has dropped by 90 plus percent. That's talking about European and American eels, but also other varieties of eels, kind of worldwide. It's a major problem. In the last 10 years, due to sort of regulations, tightening regulations and things like that, seems like maybe the European eel population has stabilized, but that's still very hard to tell. And what's causing this decline in population? There are a number of probably colluding factors. Some of it is environmental. Eels tend to be fairly susceptible to changes in their environment, so that's problematic. One of the real major issues has been the rise of hydroelectric dams. So I mentioned before that eels can travel um, overland if they need to. So they could go around a lot of medieval dams. They didn't provide a lot of problem for them, but modern big hydroelectrical dams are a significant barrier to eels and their migratory pathways it's really difficult for them to get through or around or under these dams. I feel really sorry for them now, in a way, that they had this great natural boom time. And as a result of man's influence, they've declined in popularity. And then as a result of environmental changes, again, caused by man in the most part, they've also suffered there as well. So do you feel anything for the eels, really? I do. I'm very concerned for them and for their sort of long-term viability. And Because as another point I think we should be talking about is the fact that um, they can be smuggled as well. So that's, a, that's another issue that they face. Right. And that's when I talked about the, you asked a minute ago about the, uh, the problems that they face and some of it's environmental and some of it has to do with the blocking of their migration pathways. And a lot of it has to do with overfishing and the fact that they are the world's most heavily tra- illegally trafficked animal. There's a really significant black market trade in eels from Europe to Asia. Something like a quarter of the eels, the small eels that come ashore in England or in Europe every year, are caught and illegally smuggled to Asia where they're grown over several years in, in large tanks and then either butchered there or shipped to Japan to be butchered and then sort of sent around the world. So like, if you were going to a Japanese restaurant and ordering unagi, it's very likely that the fish you're eating was caught in northern Spain, smuggled in a suitcase to China, grown in a tank, shipped to Japan and butchered, and then sent back to you wherever you are and you're eating it. So you asked if I eat a lot of eels, and I don't, partly because they're endangered, partly because like it's 
it's a tremendously unsustainable market in all kinds of ways. Well, I was going to say, uh, because, you know, you said at the start of the podcast that these fish go out to sea to mate and then die. So if these eels are being smuggled from one part of the world, northern Europe, and then taken across to Asia, then do they even have a chance to reproduce before they are butchered? No, because eels won't reproduce in captivity, or they can be made to under very specific lab-like circumstances, but it's really problematic. But generally, no, they won't reproduce in captivity. And so, and to your point, even if they sort of escaped from the tanks where they are in, in China somewhere, a European eel would be completely lost as to like, once it began its migratory journey, like where it goes. There's a history in the United States of trying to introduce eels to California because there's no eels on the West Coast of the United States. So trying to take like eels from in the 19th century, taking eels from Massachusetts and other places in New York and putting them on trains and shipping them out west to put them in Sacramento River. And this sort of works, except that once the eels leave to, to migrate, they're not going to come back there. They're basically going to get out to sea, be lost and, and swim until they die. We're not entirely sure how they know where they're going for migration, but like all of the eels in Europe in the east coast of the United States, they all go to the same place in the middle of the Atlantic. They all go to the Sargasso Sea to mate and die, as near as we can tell. So if you're moving them to China or to California or wherever, they really don't have any chance to get back to the place where they know how to, they sort of instinctually know to travel to for, for to reproduce. That's remarkable. So that's a real problem. <laughs> it is. It's almost like you're taking away the homing beacon for them. Yes, taking away their, their um, compass. Or, or, or putting them in a place where it doesn't make any sense to them at all. Yes. Um, I do feel really, really sorry for the humble eel, really, at the end of this podcast. But as a final question, John, what? why does eel history matter today? You've obviously demonstrated that uh, it's a very fascinating subject once you can get your hands on it and you can sort of pick away and start telling some stories. But um, there's more to it than just as a historical matter. It's geographical, it's environmental, it's ecological, it's um, human as well. Yes. And this is one of the things that I really enjoyed about my work with, with eels. So, And I would not have seen this coming at all. But I think the, the history of eels, and especially in England, is fascinating in its own right. I'm a medieval historian. I'm likely to think that. But as we've been talking about in the last 10, 15 minutes or so, eels face a ton of sort of modern ecological problems that are critically endangered species. And it's really hard to get people interested in saving eels, right? This is a problem with a lot of a lot of species that are endangered. But like eels are not charismatic megafauna. They're not tigers or or something sort of big and majestic. And they're not cute and cuddly. They're kind of gross. They're slimy. They remind us of snakes. It's really hard to get people on board with the idea that saving eels is worthwhile. It is for a number of reasons. Eels are sort of an umbrella fish, they uh, or species, an umbrella species. Like working to save eels means working to save, you know, freshwater stream environments and water quality and all sorts of migratory pathways and all sorts of things that benefit other species as well. So, like if you focus on helping preserve eels, you're actually doing a lot of good for a broad swath of sort of the environment. But I said it's hard to get people on board with that sometimes. And one of the things that I've found in the last four or five years is I've done a lot of public-facing history work on Twitter and other places trying to make eel history interesting and funny. And initially, this began with just me sort of finding curious bits of history in the archive and, and tweeting about it. But it sort of picked up a life of its own. And one of the things that has sort of become a guiding rationale for me in the way that I engage with the public about eels is sort of thinking about how to take the history that I've got, make it interesting in a way that sort of 
leverages people into thinking about eels as a fish that are worth saving. So one of the important things about eel history is to get a, give people a sense for how much of, especially in England, as my work focuses on England, but like how much of English history is actually tied up in this fish and how important eels have been in not just economic history, not just in terms of rent and or dietary history, but like how much a part of the culture eels were. They're, as I said, they show up in toponyms and in metaphor and in art and language and literature and all sorts of places. And that tends to have been forgotten. So I feel like being able to point people to this really deep and complicated and interesting history is a way of getting people to think about the importance of eels more broadly and to think like, we've had them as a part of English history and English identity in our past, and maybe it's a good idea to have them as part of our sort of cultural history moving forward, and that means saving them. So I think eel history is important in terms of getting people on board with the idea that eels are well worth saving. Yes, because once they're lost, then they're just relics. Only part of history. Yeah, yeah. part of history, part of Shakespearean texts or insignia on a house crest or something like that. You yes, know. and we won't understand why, which is the other issue. So it's important to keep keep the species alive and therefore keep the stories alive as well. Yeah, I think so. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the story of Old Serum and how Iron Age settlers, the Romans, Normans and Saxons all left their mark on this historic site in Salisbury. There are some very, very interesting areas that remain untouched because that cloister we know was abandoned by 1226 and it's never actually been dug out. Thanks for listening. See you next time.